0: You know, in the tradition of, of the Bible and, and the, the practice of Jesus, as well as uh, and the heritage we have in church history, I want to tell you a story. Um, God gives us stories. Uh, scripture is full of stories, and Jesus was the master storyteller. And God gives us stories, uh, not just because they inspire us, although they, they do that. Testimony. When you hear a testimony, when you hear a story, it builds faith, grows faith. But also, and this is the reason Jesus told so many parables, is because stories get truth deeper into your heart. So I'm going to start with a story. I want to tell you about Ed Dobson. Ed Dobson, he was a Christian leader back in the day, early on in his life and his career. Ed Dobson uh, was an executive in an organization called the Moral Majority, which was founded in 1979. And this was an organization that was associated with different Christian groups uh, within the Republican Party, and it was founded by a guy called um, Jerry Falwell uh, Sr., and they were very politically active. Uh, at the time, Christian evangelicals already started to become aware to the fact that, hey, American culture's really changing, very different. Christian values are kind of being not just ignored, but actively suppressed, and so they responded at that time. I was born in 1979, so I've Read this history. I didn't experience this history. He is. He's from. Yes, that's right. I was about to say that actually. So you stole my 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 next line, but uh, that's okay. Uh, But uh, he. uh, They they responded, but they uh, were known uh, really for being too harsh, and they, they pronounced judgment over an increasingly immoral America. Um, obviously, our country is immoral in many ways, but they, they were known for what they were against, more than what they were for. And this was a big, a big problem. They, where did I get to here? I lost my train of thought, my brain. Don't interrupt me though, Merrick. You're trying to learn the skill of not interrupting. That's a good skill to have, to not interrupt. Um, <laughs> so they, they were known for what they were against. Ed, uh, Ed would uh, travel regularly with this uh, organization around the country, and he had a lot of media exposure. So he um, said it was addicting to always be in the limelight, always talking, people always interested to talk to him. And it was a very kind of combative environment uh, in one sense as well, but also a lot of they received a lot of praise from different groups for what they were doing. And then they, this, this group, the moral majority, kind of reached their, uh, some of their goals and ended up kind of over time losing steam and, and ended up closing. And Ed, during this process, kind of had a bit of a change of heart and moved on to other things, became a pastor in Michigan. And a key turning point in his life was in was just before Christmas of uh, the year 2000. He went to the doctor, and the doctor told him that he was dying. And he thought to himself, this might be my last Christmas. The doctor said he had two to five years to live, and that those years would be filled with a growing disability that would get worse and worse, progressively over time, he was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is very rare. It affects all the muscles in your body. It ultimately affects your lungs, so you you can't breathe anymore, and there's no known cause to it. There's no known cure to it. It is terminal, and even Ed pointed out that It's not known of anybody who's ever been divinely healed of it either. Not that God couldn't. Of course, God is powerful, can do anything. But it's kind of a bit of a faith barrier there. At least it was for him. And he thought to himself, I'm never going to see my daughter get married. I'm not going to meet my grandchildren. And to be given a prognosis of such a short time period and also a worsening disease where you're just going to get more and more debilitated over time aggressively, he just lost all hope. How could he have any hope in this situation? He considered his life to be over at this point. And for a man whose life had been, at one point early on, characterized by a critical spirit, by pointing out the failures of others, how would he face the failure of his own body and the withering of his own strength and the looming death that he faced so rapidly out of nowhere? Well, let me pause the story there. I want to give you the conclusion to Ed's story at the end of the sermon. It's going to relate to our scripture today. And it's going to relate to, uh, to the, the, the message of Jesus today. So, we're in our, our series called The Real Jesus, and uh, we're doing this in chunks. And so, we started this last year. If you want to catch up with previous sermons, you go to slash mark, M A R K. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It will come up on the screen. And we have Bibles in our pews, so if you don't have a Bible, keep that Bible. That's our gift to you. And uh, we're looking at Scripture because that's where we find Jesus. That's the only Jesus there is, is the Jesus on the pages of the Gospels. So let's pray, and then let's read. Lord, I thank you that you're with us, and I thank you that you have amazing things to teach us today, but also you want to transform us. And I pray you would change us. Lord, that you would do an amazing work in our hearts. Cause us to be soft, but also responsive to you, Lord. Teach us through your word. And if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, bring them all the way in. And Lord, I thank you also for these new members. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1, sorry, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is God's word. So Jesus shows up at the synagogue again, and that's their version of church. And even though there's institutional problems with synagogue, with church, with religious gatherings, even though there are problems, there's problems with people, there's problems with the the institutions themselves, the organizations themselves, Jesus still values it. Jesus still wants to show up and do Good because when you show up at church, here's what happens. We see it from Jesus. You see, you meet people who have needs, those pesky, annoying people that mess with your agenda and what you want and your needs, meeting your needs. And that when we get to church, we realize, well, there's all kinds of people here that have all kinds of needs. And in the name of Jesus, this is the mission of Jesus, he's seeing, oh, I, I can meet this need. And for us, that's the question is the question of growth, the question of can we get to the place in our lives where we realize. Church is not about me. God will bless me. God will help me. God will take care of my needs. But as I pour myself out, as I look for those needs around me, that's how I get blessed. It's in serving others, in looking for the the opportunity for others. That's what Jesus is doing here at church on this day. And so he meets this man with a with a withered hand. This is not an interruption. This is not a distraction. This is not a mistake. This is the mission. This is the mission right here. This is the moment. This is a divine appointment. Jesus has been appointed for this moment to meet this man with this disability that he might bless him, that he might help him. For us, it's the same lesson. Any need, we meet. It's not an interruption. That is the mission. That's the mission right there and right then. That's what's happening. Now, this withered hand situation, this is a symbol There's a message in it. Jesus wants us to learn something incredible from this healing, this powerful healing story. It tells us of God's love and God's compassion, how God cares about our suffering. He sees it. It also tells us about the power of God. God can do anything, impossible things. It also tells us that we have permission to ask Jesus for divine healing. Of course we do. Of course we can come to him. We can ask people to pray. We can pray. We can seek God. Would you do a miracle? Of course we see that. But also this gives us hope. This story gives us hope that when we see Jesus face to face, when we're encountering Jesus firsthand, that he can heal every ailment and restore everything that's broken. He can cure every piece of suffering and everything that lingers in this life, that he'll touch it. That's the hope it gives us. But it also means something else, something quite wonderful as well. This is a symbol. This is a lesson to the world that what does a human hand represent it? In one sense, it represents all the good, all the, all the good works that we can do in the world. There's nothing quite like a, a human hand in creation. Even if other creatures had our intelligence, I mean, there are some intelligent creatures out there, aren't there? Dolphins are amazing. Certain dogs, hyenas, didn't know that. Ravens are amazing. Octopi are amazing. Octopi, octopus, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Either one works, right? One or more, I don't know. Even if they had, but even with their intelligence, even if they did have our intelligence, they don't have our hands. They can't do. To build a a civilization, to build all the technology, to build all the things we have, you have to have, you know, even, you know, apes don't have that, you know, missing the, the opposable thumb, right? You have to have hands, the the gift of of God to us to to use our bodies in physical ways to achieve what we've achieved, It's, it's an incredible gift to us. And this miracle, this withered hand being healed, is a sign to us not just that Jesus wants to take away our suffering, but he wants to restore us to be able to do good works in the world. Part of us fulfilling our divine calling is to be able, with whatever abilities we have, to do good, to do God's good in the world. We are saved not just from judgment against our sin, not just from the forces of evil. We're not just saved from the world. We're also saved from being useless. Because, you know, if you're useless, it, it's similar to being dead. If, and this is what happens to people. If people feel useless, feel like I don't... I can't contribute anything. What's my purpose here? Am I good at anything? Or can people even, do people even see me? Do people notice what I do? Or does what I do make any difference in anybody's life or in the world? Like it's such a profound thing. And if you don't have a sense of usefulness, you feel useless, you feel dead. You're dead. And so Jesus and then that's the curse of upon mankind is that our work is cumbersome, our work is hard, and if we get to the point even that we feel like our work is futile, we're not useful for God's kingdom to do the good works of God. And God's called us to bring resurrection where there is death, and even the power of God works through our limitations. So even our limitations don't stop us from doing all the great things that God wants to do through us, because. The seeds we sow, the good things we do, God brings them alive in ways that we can't beyond our abilities, beyond the effort we put in. God waters them and grows them and does incredible things. And so we might look at our limitations and see, well, well I've only, I'm only at 50% capacity. One hand is with it. I've, I'm, I've got a hand tied behind my back. I can't do all the things I want to do. But in God, we co-labor with him, and he empowers us to do all the good things in the world. He restores us to be useful. What a... What a kind God. See, without God, humanity works with a withered hand. Without God, humanity works with a withered hand. Incomplete, empty in our pursuits, just pursuing our self interest. And that this is a problem, isn't it? That even if, even if we do try and do good, what we might call good, without the right godly motive for it, oftentimes we're just pursuing our own self interest or we're doing it out of obligation. Well, I should do it because other people will when they look badly upon me, or it's my reputation that really matters, or we can list all kind of reasons to avoid responsibilities out of fear, or avoid helping people because of our own concerns, what kind of reasons maybe we're undisciplined or unfocused in different ways, and Maybe we're just distracted. Maybe we're just so focused on ourselves. We haven't broken out of that, and we haven't matured enough to see, like, God's got a plan for me to, to shine light into people's lives, to breathe life into people, to do a renewing work every day that I live. Every day there's a mission for me. There, 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 are, there are blessings to be extended to people every day. This is the Christian message. And whether we get our healing in this life or the next life, I mean, you've you got to understand, you know, God does heal. There are moments of divine healing. We pray for that. We've seen that. We ask for that. We want to have faith for that. You also have to be sensitive about people's pain and, and, and their, their sicknesses. We have to learn to be mature and sensitive, but also to, to have hope. But whether or not we get healed in this life, which is only temporary anyway, uh, our healing, uh, we will be restored in the next life. But, but either way, God gives us whatever we need for the mission that he gives us in that moment. He gives us the energy we need beyond our limitations. In fact, God calls us to do good works out of our limitations, in the midst of our limitations, in the midst of the withering. He calls us to do this. And Jesus is calling this guy out of his limitations, to go beyond his limitations. And the Pharisees are there. Their mentality is the opposite, they are there to find fault they've shown up, it says specifically in the passage we read, that they're looking to accuse Jesus. They're listening to everything he says and everything he does because they've got their preconceived notions, they've got their ideas in their minds of what they think is right, what they think Jesus should be doing, and they're just adding to, they're just trying to find examples, data points, to say, oh, well, that, that proves our perception. That proves our conclusion about Jesus. And we're, now we're just trying to bolster our points and get more evidence to accuse Jesus and to stop Jesus. I mean, this is, our culture's kind of fallen apart in many ways and, and kind of divulged into this. This happens all the time. People are, you know, online, this is what I feel like a lot of, all the toxicity online, which is most of what is online, is, is surrounded with, how can we catch somebody in something they said and make a little clip out of it and then destroy them completely? This is the mentality we have. So people are afraid to say anything or do anything. Like, well, I could be the next viral victim of some, some crazy situation that's, that's happened in the world. And this is what the Pharisees are doing with Jesus. They're finding fault. And so they show up at church to criticize. They show up to find fault. They're not there to help. They're not there to make a difference. They're there to criticize. They are worse off than this man with a withered hand. He's 50% down. They're 100% down. They have two withered hands. They're way worse off. This is the condition of the human heart. Many human hearts are this way. The status of the human heart is, can be obstinate and prejudiced, arrogant and resistant, even you could say Scrooge-like in some regards. And if we're turning up with, with judgments, we're just trying to nitpick. So well, I don't like that, or I don't agree with that. We're trying always well, seeing the fault, always seeing the problem. We've got our preconceived notions. Well, I know what's right. I know how things should be. And I'm judging, looking, constantly assessing. It doesn't fit into my grid, doesn't fit into my framework. So people might show up at church and say like, oh, you know, that greeter was just way too enthusiastic. Someone else might say, not enthusiastic enough. What kind of crazy situations? You might, you might say, well, they didn't play any of my favorite songs. Or they played my favorite song, but they did it badly. <laughs> Man, they, they, they didn't read enough Scripture. Or the, the preacher read too much Scripture. I've got to tell you, I had it one Sunday where that both of those things happened. <laughs> somebody said we didn't read enough Scripture. Somebody said we read too much. Amazing, amazing, the the, the human heart. Oh, the, I, I, you know, communion was not administered properly. Everyone has a, their bone about communion somewhere or another. Another, The preacher, that guy, man, he's went on too long. He looks weird, sounds weird, and smells weird. <laughs> Some of that might be true in different ways. But if we're, if, if we're walking around with a pharisaical, judgmental mindset where our heart hasn't been transformed to that place of saying, we actually understand our mission, we actually understand our purpose, then we're just like these Pharisees. We're we're not here to help. We're here to harm. We're here to destroy. And all of this came about for them, for the Pharisees, because they misunderstood Scripture. They misunderstood Scripture. They, They had twisted... God's word. And we talked about this last week, so I don't want to rehash all about the Sabbath. I mentioned a couple of things, but they, they misinterpreted the Sabbath, the, 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 the command not to do any work for a 24-hour period once a week to rest on that day. That command, they thought that it was a complete prohibition on all activity, including acts of compassion. And they had it completely wrong. Their interpretation was bonkers and was wrong. And so they built all these regulations. You can listen to last week. We talked about all the different regulations, all the things they built around it. it. They had it wrong. How dangerous, how much we can get off track. You misunderstand something in Scripture. You don't question. You don't have the humility to ask, what does it mean? And sometimes that can take you years of digging, of looking, of genuinely asking. And otherwise you can get off track. You say, well, God said it. It's in God's word. Well, but what if you misunderstood something? So this is why humility is so important, having, having an open, uh, humble heart, where we're actually, we, do, we don't start with the presumption that we're right, that we know everything. We start with a student percep- perception and, say, and perspective and say, teach me, help me understand, help me see it. I don't, I don't get it, it doesn't fit together. I, I, but I need to see it from your perspective. I need to understand what this means. I need to open up my heart and mind to this. And Let me give us two, two ways to, to grow in humility. A couple of ideas here for us. One is you could do this today. You could talk to somebody you know and without qualification, without explanation, admit to something you've done wrong. Just bring it up. So I just want to tell someone, I did this thing. What, or admit to mistakes you've made. What mistakes have you made? What things have you gotten wrong before? The other thing, the other way to practice this Next level, beyond that, is to ask somebody, how do you, without any defensiveness or qualification, to ask, where do you think I need to grow the most? Whew. Ever asked anyone that question? When I first, when I, many years ago, when I was a much younger man, just a couple of years ago, I... Uh, I, I I asked this question, but I wasn't ready for the answer. So I actually got some feedback, some negative feedback. I wasn't happy about it. So I wasn't prepared to ask the question. I thought I was, but I wasn't. So be prepared for that. That Maybe if you ask the question, maybe you're not prepared emotionally to hear that somebody might actually poke you and prod you a little bit and say, there are some weaknesses. Some pretty big ones too. I know for myself, yeah, you know, uh, some, some mistakes I've made, weaknesses in my own life, um, you know, I can't, can't ask anyone else to do this if I'm not willing to, to try it myself. But, uh, you know, I went through a season of, of accusation a few years back. It was pretty rough. And, you know, some of my responses initially to that were, were defensive and, and not good. I had to I had to have people help me to see that and respond to that. And complicated things. I had to apologize to a couple of people. I had made some other judgment mistakes in leadership and not properly looked at somebody's role or even put somebody in a role they shouldn't have been in and caused some problems and that that's on me that was things I I kind of knew I shouldn't have done but I decisions I made and it was humbling it's hard you're like yeah I'm I'm a frail human being I wish I could never make any mistakes but I I have and I I I will and we've got to cultivate that humility what what about you what, what, what about you? Are you open-minded? Is your heart soft towards God, open to changing your mind about things? And saying, Because I, I, here's what it comes down to. If you love Jesus, then whatever is in the word that he's given us is, is good and true, and trustworthy. Jesus is so compassionate and so wise because he handles this controversy even though such arrogance from the, the pharisees he handles it he asked him a question can you imagine just think about this the god of the universe he knows everything he's right about everything there's no evil or sin in him he could just school them he could do anything to them but how kind that he actually asked him a question Jesus does this a lot. Actually, this is a, a great skill of Jesus. He asks a lot of questions, and I want to tell you, this is—it's so powerful. Sometimes we're too quick to make judgments and statements, very strong statements about things. Instead, we need to be asking questions because we need to be seeking, not just to understand things. Jesus doesn't ask questions because he needs to understand; <laughs> he already has the understanding. He's asking a question because, in asking a question, it forces the person to have to think about what they're actually believing and doing and saying. That's the beauty of a question. And their silence tells you everything, because they're now trapped. Because there's no good answer they could give to Jesus. Their hang-up was the Sabbath. What's our hang-up? We hung up on Jesus about something? Hung up on ministry about something? Well, what are we hung up with? Well, Jesus has a question for you. He's going to ask you a question that's going to, it's going to be like a, a little stone in your shoe. And you're not going to resolve it until you actually have to think about the question. And go deep with the question. Their issue was the Sabbath. And Jesus asked them the question, well, like, is it, is it okay to, to, do, to do harm? Is it, is it lawful to do harm on the Sabbath or to do good? Is it, is it lawful? Is it okay to give life or to take life or to kill? Now, what's curious about this question is, as it relates to the, withered, the man with the withered hand, this is not a life or death situation. This man, he's disabled, but he's going to live. So what's Jesus talking about? Why is he saying, is it okay to give life or to kill life on the Sabbath? Why is Jesus saying this? And of course, their answer, that they're, they're, they're silent. But at the end it says, but they went away to plot, to destroy him. To destroy him. Other gospels say to kill him means the same thing. So this bad interpretation of the Sabbath. They're so angry at Jesus. You shouldn't do any, any work on the Sabbath. We're so rigid about our rules. Even no acts of compassion, their work. Surely God wouldn't want us to be compassionate to people in need. There's a loving God of the universe. That's crazy, right? That was their mindset. So they, had, so they had this horrible, wonky, bad interpretation of the Sabbath. They're super mad about Jesus messing with their interpretation of the Sabbath because they got it all twisted in their mind. And Jesus asked them this question. Is it lawful? To heal or to help or to bring life on the Sabbath or to take it. The reason being was he already saw into their hearts. He already saw their murderous intent. What's one of the other Ten Commandments given with the Sabbath? Do not murder. Do not murder. And their murderous intent with Jesus is coming to the surface. He can see they're already plotting to kill him and to destroy him. To do away with him. And so, in this moment, Jesus is saying, He's contrasting what He's doing, He's bringing life, He's restoring things, to what they're doing. They're, they're killing, and in, even willing to kill an innocent person. So, not only are they breaking one of the biggest commandments to not murder, especially an innocent person, but if it was deemed that somebody should receive capital punishment, And in the Old Testament, they used to stone people for it. In the New Testament, they're under Roman rule. So the Romans stopped them from doing that. So the Romans then crucified people. In two ways, they're breaking the law of Moses. They're planning to murder an innocent person. Secondly, they're doing it on the Sabbath. What does this tell you? It tells you they do not care about the law. They say they care about it. They say they're super religious. They say it's the biggest thing. It's the biggest thing is following the law, following all these commandments, all these rituals, getting it all exactly right. But when it doesn't serve their purpose, when it threatens their status and their power and their conclusions, their arrogant conclusions, when it threatens all of that, they'll throw it away. They'll deny and resist and push against one of the greatest commandments, which is don't murder somebody. You know, It's hard to imagine sometimes murdering somebody, but I'd say we're all capable of it. Any one of us could be driven to take the life of another. It's hard to imagine, but it it could happen to every person. The reason it's in the Big Ten is because it's such a common problem throughout human history. Is that people love to kill each other out of rage, out of all kinds of problems. People love to kill other. And says, don't kill. But they were saying, no, not only are we going to kill an innocent person, but we're planning it on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is supposed to be the thing we care about the most. And so Jesus is calling their bluff. He knows they don't care about the law. They're using, their religion is a veneer. And this is how unprincipled they were. They then went to the Herodians. It was, it's been recorded historically that the Pharisees believed the Herodians to be complete traitors to Israel. Because the Herodians were a group of people, Gentiles and Jews, who were politically active. And the Herodians would promote and support the, the dynasty of, of Herod. So they're trying to get Herod more power. Trying to, He's got talking points. He's got a political agenda. He's got territories he wants to rule. He's got taxes he wants to take. He's got plans. He's got things he wants to do. He wants to do. And so the Herodians were a politically active group of all kinds of people. we like, we're on team Herodian or team Herod, and we're trying to promote him and what he's doing. And so Israelites hated the Herodians, especially the Pharisees. No one hated them more than the Pharisees. This is how unprincipled they were. They went and found the Herodians, and they joined forces with them, with people they considered to be traitors, which means the Pharisees are traitors to God. That's what it actually means. Where we are willing to compromise reveals what we idolize. This is a horrible compromise. I mean, obviously there are some preferences. Obviously, you you have to compromise at times in life in terms of preferences, but not in terms of what is right and what is wrong. Where, we're, where we are willing to compromise on things that God has clearly said in his word are wrong, well, that reveals that we idolize something. Something is bigger in our hearts and our minds than Jesus himself. But Jesus understood the law, See? And, and, and there can be a problem for us here where we, we, we pit Old Testament against New Testament or we, we pit Paul against Jesus. Or we, we, we try to separate these things out. We don't realize that, that, that Jesus, the one here who's healing the withered hand, is the same God who spoke the commandments in the first place. That they all still go together. They're all still so good. And Jesus understands the purpose of the Ten Commandments, the purpose of the law that he gave, that the purpose of obeying God is that good might happen. When you obey God... When you follow the commandments of God, good things happen. It's to bring goodness into the world. See, see, the issue isn't with the law itself. The issue is with the disposition of the human heart. Because the human heart, if we're in this for our own good, if we come to church for our own good, if we're in the Christian life for our own good, well, then we'll distort the law. The law will become a weapon, like with the Pharisees, with the Sabbath, against other, it becomes a weapon against other people. But if we're in it for others, if we're in it for God, we're in it for others, the law becomes a guide to do good. It becomes a joy to say, well, it's a delight to, to resist the things of evil and to do the things of God. It's a joy to do that. And so we have to ask ourselves, Jesus is at church trying to help people and trying to do good. Why are you here? Why are we here? Are we here just to keep up the ceremony and the pomp? Or are we here just to, with our own agendas, trying to change things, trying to shift things around? What, what are we here to do? Or are we here on Team Jesus, pushing forward Jesus' agenda and what he wants to do in and through us? And it was their obscure, quirky, theological interpretation. It was their innovative interpretation of the Sabbath that blinded them and caused them to reject God. And Jesus is angry about it. Jesus is angry about it. Anger does not mean that God doesn't love us anymore. In fact, anger, you only get angry if you love something. If you, if you don't get angry, that means it's a sign you don't love that thing or that person. Somebody hurts you and you're angry, well, that means I love them. Jesus hates cruelty. Jesus hates indifference. He hates mistreatment of the weak and the vulnerable. There's a lot of social justice or a lot of issues of mercy in our day and age that Jesus cares about. A lot of those things get distorted and twisted as well, turned into weapons. And Jesus is angry when we're not actually loving people properly. Never get fooled into muting or denying or downgrading God's anger. There are certain voices in the Christian world that want to hit the mute button or throw water on God's anger. I've got to tell you, without God's anger, we would never care about injustice. And without God's anger, we would never care about sin. And we would never understand how good God's salvation is. Of course God is angry about what is evil. It's evil. Their hearts, their indifference to this disabled person. If that's our heart, if we're more concerned about our theological, obscure understandings and interpretations above helping somebody in need, then shame on us if that's us. Any, heart, any human heart can do this. It's not just enough, though, to recognize that God hates sin and hates evil and hates certain things. He's angry about their cruelty and their indifference. It's not just, you can get focused on that, and a lot of Christians get focused on that. You have to admit it. You can never deny it. But that's not the whole picture. You also have to look at well, what does God love? What does God love? And this is the problem is, is that we, people want to take one side of this. Well, just focus on what to love. Why disagree? Why point out problems? Well, that's what God does. What does God love? Here's what God loves. God loves faith. Here's one of the things that God loves the most is faith. He loves to see faith from our hearts. Faith... That that trusts his words. Now, faith can be mysterious to us at times, can't it? You say, "God, increase my faith. Help me, in my faith. I'm lacking faith." It can because it's can, you know it starts as like an invisible. It's it's like a, an invisible force within us almost. Like what is faith? Do I do I really believe? Do I not believe? I don't know. But faith can be confusing. But faith is seen in our acts of obedience. That's how you really test your faith is in your acts of obedience. And so the quality of your faith is seen in the greatness of the risks you're willing to take for God. The smaller the risks you're willing to take for God, the smaller your faith. The bigger the risks you're willing to take for God, the bigger your faith. That's now, it's not up to us to fully judge only God really knows somebody's heart. And, you know, we don't want to get too focused on people's performance and people's outward expressions of things because we don't know what's going on in, in their hearts, but God does. We can test ourselves. We can test ourselves. Say, am I willing to obey? Am I willing to step out? Martin Luther King Jr. said this. You have this quote from him regarding faith. It says, faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. It's that, that step. So Jesus tells this man with a withered hand to do something that's impossible. When he says to stretch out his hand, sometimes people think that, oh, it just means like extend his arm. But that's not really what it means. It means to open your hand the very thing he could not do. It was impossible. And the God of the Bible told this man to do something impossible. Open up your hand. Stretch out your hand. So he's got an option here. Do I try? Do I, do I, do I just say, well, like, I'm not going be to better do it. So I'm not even going to try. Well, he tries. And in trying, he finds that he receives his healing. And this is a beautiful picture of how the divine power of God works within human agency as well. That, like God has all the power and tells us to do, to do stuff, and as we respond to Him, He can make impossible things possible. Uh, ultimately, that's up to Him. You know, we, we pray for breakthroughs and all kinds of wonderful things. And but this this amazing healing moment. And so the, the joy for us and the test for us is: no matter how impossible something seems, no matter how hard it seems, no matter how matter out of step it seems, no how kind of awkward it seems or difficult it seems. If Jesus has said it, if he's revealed it, I can trust it. I can bet my life on it. And he'll come through for me. He'll do a miracle. He'll do something incredible. And here's what you know about Jesus is that when you meet him, he'll change you. Now, the Pharisees have changed for the worse. So sometimes you become worse. But if your heart is open and soft you get better, you you transform, you change. And let me say to you today, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Do the thing that you think you can't do, the thing you think is impossible, the thing you think, it can't happen, I don't have the strength, I don't have the resources. How could it be? I want to say, like Jesus said to this man, I want to say, open up your hand, stretch out your hand today, and become useful for God's kingdom. Become useful for Jesus. Allow Him to restore you in a way where you can do even more good in the world. Show your faith and hold back. You know, hold back those critiques. There'll be a time for constructive feedback. There'll be a time to collaborate and try and solve problems and try and figure things out. There's always there's space for that. But if we're of that Pharisaical mindset where we just things oh that we just don't, can't cope with certain things not being a certain way or things we don't like our pet peeves, let's take a step back. Let's learn from a guy like Ed Dobson. What became of him? He had come from this critical place early on in his life, but now diagnosed with a terminal disease. Well, he called a friend, and during this conversation with this friend, it was a very helpful conversation, why it's good to have friends, and this friend helped Ed realize that Even in the tragedy, even facing looming death and looming, worsening disability, he still had time. Even if it would be a short time, he still had time and he needed to make himself useful to God in that time, even though it was a short period of time. And so he made a very interesting decision. He decided that he would live a year trying to be exactly like Jesus. And he kind of had some fun with this. He decided, like, literally, he was going to try and mimic the life of Jesus. And so he, uh, he he took this to some extremes, actually. And he he grew a beard, so he could be you know try, he's trying to imagine what was it like to be a Jewish man two thousand years ago, and then to live the life that Jesus lived. And so he he became Jewish in many regards. He started following the he tried following the Sabbath like Jesus would have had to follow the Sabbath. He stopped listening to all of his music that he loved. Watch, stop watching all entertainment, all of those things, or Jesus wouldn't have had any of those things. We stopped all of that, and he listened to the four Gospels every week. Every week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the way through, he listened every week, listened to them. He's trying to get the Scriptures into his heart, trying to get it into his heart. He said for the first time ever, even though he'd been in ministry for years, even though he'd been a Christian leader for years, for the first time in his life, he was stepping away from the, the traditional trappings And the denominational restraints that he'd always felt, and he was trying to live a truly Christ-centered life. He and his wife invited some young people to come and live with them to create a a small community of discipleship in their home. I mean, can you imagine that? The guy's been told you're going to be getting progressively more disabled and dying two to five years, and they say, let's have some young people in our home. he decided that he would pick up any hitchhiker he saw and that no matter where they asked him to take them, he would take them there. He made that commitment. just want to say, ladies, you don't have to do that. He made that commitment. He said during this year, he began to feel like he was... Truly living the life of Jesus. I mean, it was very difficult at times, but he he began to feel like, I'm really living the story of Jesus. And during this year, that critical mindset that he'd had, he gave it up more and more and more and took on a more compassionate approach. And when his hands began to fail him, his wife became his hands for him, which fits into our passage today. And as his body became more and more frail, as his muscles failed, he decided to himself, you know, I'm just going to... I'm just going to keep speaking. As, as long as my tongue will work, I'm just going to keep speaking the message of Jesus, keep communicating it. And if my tongue finally gives up, I'm going to, I'm going to try and write. I'm going to try and keep writing because he, he would, he's written books and done, written other stuff. And he said, I'm just going to keep, I just want to keep declaring it. And then, and then if, if, if that even gives up, and you know I, my mind goes or whatever, I'm just going to live for as long as I believed that every day that God gave him energy, he had a mission to fulfill, and that God would give him the energy for the mission right in front of him, for the need, for the blessing of others right in front of him. And Ed Dobson said this, this quote from him here. He says, one day it will be over. But it's not about how long I have left. It's about how I spend the time I do have. How I spend the time I do have. Doctors said he would live for somewhere between two to five years, end up living for another 15 years, By God's grace, celebrating many more Christmases. He saw his daughter get married. And then on December 26, 2015, day after Christmas, he finally passed away. And his legacy lives on through the testimony of his life, through this transformation he went through. Somebody who had been critical, somebody who had really had this been a part of this organization that was known for being harsh and critical to being somebody who was transformed by grace to serve others, even in the midst of great personal tragedy and suffering. If we're willing to hear the words of Jesus, they have the power to transform us. In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, I think it is, or verse 22, excuse me, Jesus says this, and all spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Yes, Jesus hates our sin. He hates your sin. He hates my sin, but he's willing to forgive it. He wants to forgive it. He hates it, but he wants to forgive it. And in this desire to want to forgive it, he has made a sacrifice, made a substitution, given up the most precious thing, his own life, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, to die in our place, to become our substitution, that He would wither instead of us withering. And Jesus' hands were pierced, nailed to a cross. They were paralyzed so that we could be resurrected to life to do the good works of God in the world. That's the gospel message. It is not what you do. It's what He did. Put your hope in that. There's such joy in that. That's the only joy there is, is that message right there. It's the greatest message. There's no story like it. All the other stories in history are just ripoffs of that story. Some get close sometimes to touching the magic of it, but you can't touch the magic of the story of Jesus, a self-sacrificing God. See, gods don't sacrifice themselves. A self-sacrificing God because of his love for us. Because he wants to set us free. Let's worship. Let's respond to Jesus today.